Eventually, you can transform Mars into an Earth-like planet. How would you do that? Uh, you'd, you'd warm it up. Just warm it up. If you with warm, a blanket or with what? <laughs> how would you, how well, would you warm Mars up? You know, it's, it's, it's a the long fast way, way away from the sun. There's the fast way uh, and the slow way. Okay. Uh, give, me, <laughs> give, me the, give me the fast way. The fast way is, is drop thermonuclear weapons over the poles. You're a supervillain. <laughs> That's what a supervillain does. Yeah. That's SpaceX CEO Elon Musk chatting with talk show host Stephen Colbert about the possibility of setting off nuclear bombs to warm up Mars and make it more Earth-like. I guess that's one option for the planet remodeling process known as terraforming. But is it at all realistic to think about turning alien planets into more comfortable homes for humans and other species? In a new novel called The Terraformers, science writer Anna Lee Newitz explores the concept of long-term terraforming and explores the parallels to the challenges facing our present-day society as well. Greetings, Earthlings. I'm Alan Boyle, one of your hosts for the Fiction Science Podcast, coming to you from the place where science and technology intersect with fiction and popular culture. Join me and my co-host, Dominica Fetaplace, as we chat with Annalie Newitz about the brave new world of the terraformers. When it comes to the frontiers of science, Annalie Newitz straddles the line between fiction and nonfiction. They've written books about the real-life science of mass extinction and urbanization, as well as novels about biotech, AI, and time travel. Their latest novel, The Transformers, is set in the year 59,000 or so, when interstellar real estate companies are capable of shaping habitable planets, as well as the humanoid workers and other species who populate them. The book turns up the dials on issues ranging from geoengineering to gender, from plate tectonics to the personhood of non-human species. The plot provides parallels to the challenges facing cities like Seattle and San Francisco, but it also celebrates the universal values of liberty, equality, and fraternity in a context that isn't limited to our little tribe of hairless apes. The fictional world of the Terraformers was topic A when science fiction author Dominica Fetaplace and I chatted with Anna Lee over a Zoom connection, but we didn't have to go very far beneath the surface to dig into the story's non-fictional implications for our own mixed-up society, as you'll find out from this podcast. Dominica started out the conversation by asking Anna Lee about the genesis of the Terraformers. A big part of what inspired Terraformers was just a basic question that I think a lot of nerds have had, which is, how would you build a planet from scratch? And um, what would it take to start with a rock whose atmosphere had been knocked off and get from that all the way to modern cities? So that was kind of the thought experiment that I started with. And then as I was working on it, I realized that the book had to be multi-generational in order to show how this planet is transforming. And I realized I'd kind of backed myself into telling a story about climate change and kind of had along the way figured out that for me, the best way to tell a story about climate change is to give us characters whose lives stretch across many thousands of years because 
it's, you know, that is, climate change takes place on a multi-generational scale. And so I think it's really important to have stories that let us experience that imaginatively. And so, um, so it was kind of, like I said, it started as kind of a nerdy thought experiment and it became something a lot more profound along the way. The subject of terraforming and climate change has been something that Elon Musk has talked about, for example, you know, terraforming Mars, uh, setting off a nuclear bomb in order to change the atmosphere of, of Mars and, we have enough trouble trying to figure out how to stop the terraforming that we're doing with industrial processes on Earth. So is this something that's totally science fiction, or do you think this is something that actually could be done in the 59,000 A.D. time frame? Yeah, this book takes place 60,000 years in the future, so a lot of stuff has happened in between, right? There's a lot of hand-wavy technologies that we would have had to have invented you know, I do think it's realistic that humans are going to eventually try to set up shop off of Earth um, in some way. Uh, we are explorers. We always have been. We like to get into flimsy vessels and go to new places. And we started out on the oceans, and I think we're going to do it in space. So I think for me, the question is terraforming in the name of what? Um, and, and under the auspices of what organizations. And I think that's why these billionaire experiments with terraforming, but also with putting particles into the atmosphere to dim the sun and a variety of other geoengineering projects, those always raise a lot of questions for me. And in my novel, I have a terraforming project which is being run by an interstellar real estate development corporation which I think is kind of realistic. I mean, it's basically the equivalent of billionaires in space. And it makes sense that if you wanted to terraform a world, it would cost a lot of money and you would need to have a way to pay for it. Um, and so that's what's happening in this book. And the people who are actually doing the work who are essentially owned by this corporation that's, uh, that owns the real estate, they're just typical first responders and construction workers and environmental engineers just trying to kind of get by. And I can imagine that being exactly what might happen if we started to, say, set up habitats on the moon or on Mars or in orbit around Venus, that there'd be some rich people who are making money on it somehow, and then a lot of people who are doing the work, who are in danger or who are not being paid adequately and who are trying to unionize but having trouble. And um, so I can imagine the future of terraforming being kind of like Amazon warehouse workers in space a little bit. And um, that's kind of the vibe that I'm going for in this book. Gotcha. A couple of years ago, we spoke with you for the podcast about a book called Four Lost Cities, in which you traced the histories of four ancient urban centers and delved into the lessons that those cities could teach about contemporary urban societies. And you also wrote a book called Scatter, Adapt, and Remember, which is about the science of mass extinctions. Now the Terraformers has given you an opportunity to geek out over the sci-fi possibilities for urban planning, as well as the ways in which societies and species respond to mortal threats. And I guess this is a long-winded way of asking you about the parallels between science fiction and real-life research into the rise and fall of societies. 
Yeah, you caught me because a lot of the research I did for both of those books uh, wound up being in the terraformers. Um, there's a lot of um, exploration of the geological ages of this planet, which is something I really got into in Scatter, Adapt, and Remember, because when you're looking at mass extinctions, of course, you kind of have to look back into deep time to see what they did and, and what they affected. And then in Four Lost Cities, I looked a little bit less deeply into time, into human history, and thought about how cities became such an important part of human civilization when we had lots of options. You know, we could have stayed mostly nomadic, uh, living in caves or in um, temporary shelters, but we didn't. We set up these weird frickin', uh, we basically terraformed, you know? <laughs> we were like, oh, let's just build a bunch of boxes and see how this goes. Uh, they weren't always boxes, of course, sometimes they were circular um, and uh, or they were pyramids. There is a pyramid in the terraformers, which is a kind of loathsome um, structure. I mean, in the novel, it's a loathsome structure. In life, pyramids are great. I, I have nothing against pyramids. <laughs> um, so I think, you know, what happens when you're a science journalist is when you've done a bunch of research like that and you've had all of these ideas in your head, you start to wonder about possibilities and you start speculating like, well, what if cities evolved in a slightly different way? Or what if we could control the way that the planet's atmosphere was behaving? I mean, what if we could control it in a way that was much more conscious? Because one of the upsetting things, right, that's happened to humans is that we have been controlling the atmosphere without realizing it for a very long time. We've been pumping all of this carbon um, into the environment um, and toxins into the ocean. And for most of that time, we didn't realize what a huge effect that would have down the line. And so my question was, well, what if we did know? And what if we were planning, planning that? And what if we were planning for our cities to be part of the way that we build nature? And what if we built cities that fit into nature? And what if we built nature so that it was resilient against um, some of the problems that cities have? And so that's kind of where terraformers, the terraformers comes from, because we visit a lot of different cities on the planet. It's, you know, it's in the process of being developed by real estate companies, and each company has a kind of different idea about how they want to manage the land and how they want to manage habitation. And, and also what kinds of creatures count as people. One of the really fun and fantastical parts of this book for me is that I imagine that synthetic biology has brought us to a point where a lot of non-human animals are also people. So there's characters who are moose, there's like a cyborg cow who is one of my favorite characters. There's a, a sentient train who is part of the public transit infrastructure on the planet. And we meet naked mole rats who have opinions and angry worms. And I really wanted to think about what would happen if we expanded our definition of who gets to participate in civilization? Like what if we brought a bunch of non-human animals to the bargaining table with us and said, all right, well, what would you like to have out of a city? Like what kind of nature do you like? And so that is where I completely departed from my scientific research and went into just speculation. You know, what if we did this? And I think for me, the answer is if we do that, we're kind of on the right path. We're not on a perfect path. This is not a book about utopia. There's a lot of bad things that happen, but people are doing slightly better. They're kind of, they're starting to experiment with 
social structures that I think are a little better than what we're doing right now? Yeah, one interesting thing about this book is uh, how it marries more fantastical concepts with hard science. And there's like a lot of science fact in this book. Uh, in the back of the book, you acknowledge that you spoke with many different specialists, a material scientist, a geologist, a planetary scientist, among other people. I'm wondering, what was it like to consolidate all these facts into one story? And I'm also wondering, is there anything you really wanted to put in here, but you had to leave out? Oh, man. <laughs> so it was really fun. Um, one of my favorite things in my work is to talk to people who are very grounded in their science and super knowledgeable and then gently nudge them toward rank speculation and you know some scientists don't want to do that but anyone who has responded you're a to bad an, influence i know <laughs> but I, I also think it's 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 part of the delight of science it's part of what when people talk about a sense of wonder it's because science science is constantly proving that old science is wrong, right? And the only way you do that is through a leap of, of um, insight, which is part of imagination. So my point is that, you know, if I email a scientist and I explain, I'm going to do something very silly, like build a planet, um, and they're willing to talk to me, like they've already kind of bought in. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's selection bias. Um, so it's really, it's, it was really fun. Um, I, uh, spoke for a, a long time with um, Atreyi Ghosh, who studies um, the origins of plate tectonics, which is a super interesting thing. I mean, plate tectonics in general is amazing. And I was like, well, how would you build a machine? Like, if you had a planet that was tectonically dead, how would you build a giant machine that would start plate tectonics? And it was so fun because, like, she was like, oh, well, you would just do this and that. I'm not going to give you spoilers, but like, she really helped me come up with this like crazy machine that of course who knows if it could ever possibly exist but like i loved that her brain like went right there like oh no i've thought about this if i were going to start plate tectonics like i've got this idea in mind so yeah i think um that that's a big part of the joy for me there was a ton of stuff that i left out and actually and maybe i'll write a short story about it but originally i know i i'm <laughs> you're giving me the thumbs up so the book, where the novel starts, the planet has already been terraformed for a while. Like people have been on this planet terraforming it for thousands of years. And the first thing they do, which we never see, it's totally off screen. They first have to build an atmosphere and they have to um, create continents and oceans. And none of that stuff is really there initially, but we don't know that. And I actually had planned initially for there to be another part of the book where there's a bunch of people like living on a space station who are like creating continents from space. And then there's another generation that comes down and builds the atmosphere using cyanobacteria in the ocean and um, and does like, you know, advanced techniques for like uh, rapid weathering and things like that. And um, and so we hear a little bit about that in the book, like there's certain places that they visit where they talk about like, oh, yeah, when they were building the continent, that's how they created these. So that was the thing I didn't get to do. And it was funny because I spent so long talking to this one atmospheric scientist about how you would build an atmosphere in 10,000 years, which is a really short time. <laughs> um, and I got his buy in on it. Um, and and then I just didn't get to put it in the book. So that's that, something I missed, for the next book. I know, maybe a prequel. <laughs> well, in your defense, you do manage to get in a lot about 
the early history of the planet that's being terraformed and how the atmosphere had to change and how that required a different sort of hominin species, maybe not a homo sapiens species, but a different species. And yeah. I was intrigued by that idea uh, and the, the idea that uh, everybody basically is created through 3D printing, uh, that you don't have people being born, they're decanted, and that any entities that are created with human level intelligence, including, you know, moose, you, you mentioned mm -hmm. the moose and the naked mole rats, even robots and sentient trains would be regarded and respected as people. Yeah. So there, that introduces a whole bunch of issues that you do address in the book. And that debate over the personhood of non-human species and intelligent machines has been the stuff of science fiction for decades. But I think you introduced some new twists. And so I thought I'd give you an opportunity to talk about some of those twists and how they relate to present day society. Yeah, so one of the uh, darker parts of this book, one of the more pessimistic parts of this book is this idea that because we're genetically engineering every life form, basically, you can build a life form to have uh, certain cognitive characteristics, shall we say. And so when you're building a moose who is a person, that moose is basically in in my um, not very scientific speculation, right? This moose basically has a human equivalent cognition, right? It can think that I don't know how it's you know its brain has been modified, right? But uh, there are all kinds of um, ways that um, people's brains can be limited in their ability to communicate, and so there are different classes of people who have what are called limiters, which prevents them from talking about certain things. Um, so they might be having the same thoughts as like, um, you know, a brilliant material scientist, but they can only speak in monosyllables or right. they can and only talk about work. And it's a very, it's a very class stratified society. And there's a class of people. Well, there's a class called people who are human equivalent, just like homo sapiens, but they look like moose or whatever. And then there's um, mounts uh, who like the character Whistle, the moose, um, he's a mount. And um, that means he, he can only speak in monosyllables so that he sounds, he sounds less intelligent. Um, and it's kind of a, um, a way that the people who are using him can reassure themselves that they're not abusing a person because, oh, He's not really a person. He's he's extremely mentally limited, um, even though he's not. And then there's another class of people called blessed, and they can only talk about work. And we do meet a couple of characters who are in that situation, and we see how horrible their lives are because they're really yearning to express many, many ideas. And the only way they can do it is to kind of come up with little hacks where they can express a new idea, but they have to mention something about their work in some way and um and it's it's basically we see that this is a this class system this intelligence class system can be implemented in a really repressive way um or not like others we see different civilizations that don't have that idea we see a, a city where nobody has an intelligence rating or we see cities where some people do but other people 
don't like it. And so they refer to these intelligence assessment ratings as in-ass ratings because, you know, you have to have your head in your ass to really believe in them. This is something that is sort of a like a theme throughout the book about what do we think of as um, a per- who do we call a person and what are the measurements we use to think of uh, what are the ways that we measure personhood. And so in this world, it's through this fake notion of intelligence where it's it's not really any kind of real intelligence. It's just this kind of built in um, limiter on people's brains that can be removed and um, and is only put in there through essentially through cruelty and through um, a, a kind of um, homo sapiens supremacy. And um, there's a lot of problems with homo sapiens supremacy in this book. A lot of homo sapiens think that they're just really much better than other people. And so the reason I I really focused on that, there were kind of two reasons. One is that I think that intelligence on earth is an idea that's been weaponized to oppress people again and again and again. Different groups have been accused of being uh, less intelligent than others. Um, it's been used you know, in a racist context under colonialism, it's been used in the sciences to try to keep women out of the sciences. You know, women are accused of not having the right kind of intelligence to do math or physics, um, which is again, all foolishness, none, none of that is real. But also we're at this beginning of AI technology becoming more ubiquitous or the thing that we call AI, which is really just machine learning and large language models and a bunch of other stuff. Uh, But now I think intelligence is being commodified. Um, And so I think it's interesting to think about intelligence as a commodity, intelligence as a weapon, and and to kind of realize that it's, again, it's just all made up. You can't measure intelligence, just like you can't measure love. You know, it's it's a thing that's ineffable. You You can look for symptoms of intelligence, but you can't, there's no like dipstick that you can like stick into someone's head and pull it out and go, oh, it's at 8% intelligence. So, so I'm kind of making fun of that idea in the book, but I'm also pointing out um, how much the idea of intelligence is, is a, can be used as a form of cruelty. And, um, and so there's a lot of characters who are rebelling against that idea and who are struggling with it. Um, and, uh, and I think they do a pretty good job of um, pushing back. This book has a really large and diverse cast of characters. We've already mentioned Whistle is my favorite character, the flying moose. And you mentioned you like Zest, the cow. I'm wondering if you have any other favorite characters. And also, what is it like uh, to write these uh, uplifted animals and uh, non-human people as characters? I love writing non-human people as characters. Um Some of my earliest influences when I was a little kid um, were things like the Beatrix Potter books where you had really angry mice and um, lazy rabbits who managed to become kind of carrot pirates. (laughs) I love a good carrot pirate. Um, And also Lassie's Rescue Rangers. one of my favorite shows when I was a kid and during the pandemic I found myself watching Lassie's Rescue Rangers on YouTube just to like feel better um, while I was working on this book and so there's the characters in this book a lot of the non-human animals are part of this group called the environmental rescue team who are basically Lassie's, Lassie's Rescue Rangers in space plus environmental engineering and you know and the thing that was great about 
Lassie was that Lassie was part of the team. And in some versions of the story, Lassie kind of almost talks like not quite, but like Lassie will be like, and you know, it's, you kind of get the sense that everyone understands Lassie. So to write these characters, I often would think about when I'm writing a non-human animal character, I like to think about what it would feel like to be a person hanging out with homo sapiens, but you don't look like a homo sapiens at all. You have a moose body and everybody is making assumptions about you because you have a moose body, even though you're a person and they're a person. So I didn't try to um, imagine, for example, like what would be a moosey way of being, if that makes sense, because this whistle is not a moose like the moose that we could meet if we went up to Canada and hung out for long enough in the boreal forest. You know, Whistle is a person like like you or me. And so but Whistle has this has a moose body and has a lot of moose um, predilections like he likes to swim and he likes to kick up his heels for fun. But really what he's dealing with is just garden variety prejudice that people have, you know, against um, mounts or against um, people who don't look like them. And so I think for me, the fun of it was imagining people in different kinds of bodies. And it's the same thing with robots. Like robots are people in a body that has different capabilities than ours. And, you know, they have different um, ways of thinking. And, um, but that doesn't mean they're not people. Like they're all just sort of, it's sort of a big gang of non-neurotypical people. And they're all um, hanging out and having fun and doing work together. So I would say my favorite characters are also, I love Whistle the Moose uh, very much. And um, I'm glad that, uh, well, anyway, <laughs> he, he, he has a happy ending. Um, and um, I really love Scrub Jay the Train. Uh, and Scrub Jay is a major character uh, in the third part of the book. And they are um, modeled on the street cars in Melbourne. Uh, Australia. And so I had this picture of the <laughs> the um, Melbourne streetcar up on my desktop while I was writing and was like, oh, this is my little friend Scrub Jay or my big friend Scrub Jay. Um, and I, I liked the fact that Scrub Jay was um, serving the public good by participating in public transit, but also is a very much their own person. Like they have a lot of, they're, they're interested in strategy games. They're kind of kinky they have a couple of bodies that they can port their consciousness into and like go out and meet people and go to bars and pick people up if they want and so i liked just having that contradiction of this incredibly sweet good-hearted train that always does the right thing and always treats their passengers well but then like lands and like goes to the like robot hookup bar um, so that was really fun for me. And, and, um, Scrub Jay gets to have a really lovely relationship with a cat, which is, I think I've always wanted to have a train and a cat fall in love in a story because I watched my neighbor Totoro and always wondered where that cat bus came from. So now, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. In, in the book, you, uh, amp things up a little bit beyond the Lassie's rescue ranger level. And so you've, <laughs> you've already yeah. brought up the, the, uh, sex angle. What would you like to say about the sex scenes, uh, 
because, you know, you get a little, you know, I would say R-rated at, at least on these scenes. Yeah, there's, I would say R-rated is a good way to put it. You know, I really love having romance in my stories. And um, these are characters who live in a culture which doesn't have a ton of taboos against sex. So when people are interested in each other, they might hook up and it doesn't mean um, necessarily what it might mean in a you know story that's set in our present day. Uh, but it is also very romantic. Like pretty much all of the sex in this book is, you know, it's a bit naughty, but it, it does have a romantic angle to it. And even there's a one kind of casual sex scene, which is still kind of tender. Like the two people really like each other. Um, maybe they can't be together forever, but they're they're not just it's not like um, they feel bad about it afterwards. They, they have a good time. And um, I think also for me, sex is a way of just expressing joy. And I think that when you can have two characters just enjoying each other or in one case, you know, enjoying being in a giant room full of people who are all cheering, um, <laughs> you'll see. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I think it's, um, it's, it's just a way of, of getting in touch with like the part of, of being a person, um, that allows us to connect with other people. And so, um, I've always actually, all of my novels have sex scenes in them that have given people like little question marks inside of, um, thought bubbles, uh, especially in my first novel. Some, I remember one reviewer was just like, well, I mean, this book has a lot of science, but like, what about the sex? And was like really kind of freaked out that there was some robot sex in there. Um, so I hope that reviewer is prepared. But um, uh, yeah, no, I just, I just also just really like sex. So I think it's always nice to have it in a story. And I mean, in, nice sex, yeah. <laughs> like happy sex, not, you know, this is all happy consensual sex. So there's, Absolutely. and it's very clear, the characters all get consent from each other and it's very delightful and sweet. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, and people have to figure out how to accommodate each other, even though they may be of different species or maybe robot uh, and cat, for example. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Which, which suggests that real world question, should robots be programmed to enjoy sex? Oh, I see what you're getting at. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess we'll find out. I actually have a story uh, called Old Media that came out on Tor.com, which is actually about that question about a robot uh, and a human who are in love. And the human, the robot is basically asexual and the human is not. And the human is like, well, don't you want to like download a program so that you can enjoy sex? And the robot is like, well, I mean, I thought about it, but I'm just really not interested. I, I, I am interested in romance, but I'm just just doesn't it doesn't appeal to me and she kind of compares it to you know certain kinds of movies don't appeal to her either she's like well you know i just don't really like to watch that kind of movie um so i think that uh if we reach a point where robots are feeling things and are basically people that we should just give them the option we should say like hey you can download this if you want to enjoy sex if something else interests you go ahead and download that instead you know it's sex is just one of like 90 billion things you can enjoy yeah relationships are a big part of this book not just sexual relationships but like friendships and all the different types of relationships that uh, people can form another big part of this book is urban planning 
Uh, and so I'm curious how living in San Francisco influenced this book. Yeah, that's a great question. It really did influence it. And there's a couple of cities in the novel that are kind of a little bit San Francisco-ish. And the final section of the book is called Gentrifiers. So I was definitely thinking about the issues around gentrification that we have here in San Francisco. And there, San Francisco is really an outlier. There's an extremely acute problem with gentrification here for a number of reasons, ranging from regulations around density to um, problems with how our economy is a boom and bust economy and also how small the city is. I mean, physically small and a bunch of other stuff too, like a whole history of problems with uh, bribes and scams. And I don't know, San Francisco is, is, it's, is a very weird place. Um, and so I was thinking about how gentrification is something that you wouldn't necessarily be able to escape even if you were building a brand new planet in space that if you as soon as you turn land into property questions around gentrification are going to come up because as property changes hands new people will come along who want to make new use of that land and that's that's really the fundamental issue with gentrification is that you have a community living in a place maybe they're not they don't own the place and then new owners come in and they're like, oh, but we want to put this kind of building up or we want to use this farmland in this way. Um, and the original residents don't like it or they get priced out. And there is this conflict over who gets to to shape that land and shape the future of that land. And it's really heartbreaking to watch it happen because it isn't just about changing how buildings look or how streets look. It's about actually displacing whole communities, generations of people, families, you know, it's really, it's just straight up a crime. And so I wanted to remind people that that problem is something that we're gonna have to continue to struggle with and try to solve as much as we can. And um, certainly in this novel, people have not really solved it, some of the cities have much better solutions than others. And we see kind of extreme examples of how gentrification can take place. And also we see a lot of people who are houseless. You know, there's a, a huge, pro you know, you think like, oh, you come to this brand new planet, everybody gets a house. It's like, no, that's, that's not how property works. <laughs> as soon as you have property, you have people who don't have property. That's, that's the problem. So, I'm hoping that by kind of falling in love with these characters that readers will start to have empathy for people who are being displaced and being priced out and, and really think about how maybe property ownership, maybe that's something we should just rethink. Like if we're going to rebuild civilization on another planet, maybe we should rethink how we handle property itself. And so we see a little glimpses of that in the book. My hometown, Seattle, is one of the stops on your book tour. And uh, definitely uh, your book addresses some of the themes that people are trying to deal with in real life in Seattle, uh, particularly homelessness and, and the sorts of things that you also see in San Francisco. So yeah. uh, are there any lessons that modern day policymakers can learn from not only this book and, and from the way that this issue is addressed in science fiction, but also from the experiences that people have had over the millennia with urbanization, uh, which you wrote about in Four Lost Cities. 
Yeah, I mean, one of my big takeaways in Four Lost Cities after studying all of these ancient cities that were abandoned was that one of the main reasons why people abandoned cities is because the people who were the ownership class started mistreating their workers. And workers are the people who make the city wonderful. They're the ones who build the cities. They're often the people who are going to all of the festivals and selling the yummy food, but also buying the yummy food at the festivals. These people are the lifeblood of the city. It's not the like dude living in a tower with a billion dollars. That's that guy. He has nothing to do with what makes the city good. I think one of the things that's a very easy lesson to learn is don't mistreat your workers. Unions are good because they help workers connect with each other and bargain collectively with the ownership class. And obviously there's exceptions to that rule. Sometimes unions are corrupt, but on the whole, I think we're going through a period in our history, especially in places like Seattle and San Francisco, where the tech industry is slowly awakening people to the idea that maybe they need to have more worker solidarity I think that we're sort of witnessing the birth of a new kind of labor movement in the United States. And I think that's really healthy. I think that that's something that's a natural result of the conditions that we're in right now. And that's something that I deal with a little bit in the terraformers. It's not strictly a labor movement because labor doesn't really work the same way in this far future, uh, but it is a movement toward government and public ownership of the land rather than um, corporate ownership of the land and corporate governance. So a lot of the characters in this book really want their planet to be a public planet. Currently in the book, for, for most of the book, it's a privately owned planet. It's owned by these, these real estate companies. And so there, there's a movement for a public planet and for public transit and for public land. And um, I think that's, a really basic lesson that cities have had to learn over and over again. It's not like I'm the first person to notice this, you know, this is um, having spaces that are for the public, really beautiful spaces, having um, accessible transit, giving people mobility, giving people access to education and housing and healthcare. All of that stuff is part of providing a good infrastructure in a city. And that's, you know, we get glimpses of that in, in the terraformers. And I really wanted to show people what does it actually look like to have a functioning city where people are empowered to participate in their government really meaningfully and where the government is, where the government views its job as serving the public rather than serving itself. And, um, and also a, you know, ideas about how we can maintain capitalism in a certain way, like we do need money, we do need an economy, um, but it needs to be taking a backseat to public needs, you know, that it really needs to be that the public comes first and capital and profit come second. Um, you know, if we want to survive, like if we want to survive as a civilization, like if there's always the option of just like, well, screw it, we don't care. And that's kind of where we are now. <laughs> They like to see us get a little closer to being, um, you know, I'd like to see Earth become a public planet. I think that would be a really good step forward. Yeah, well, if people are curious about these things, they should definitely check out the terraformers where you lay out like several different visions for the future on one planet. 
Um, thank you so much for talking with us. We're almost at the end of our time. We always ask one last question for recommendations. I remember last time you recommended the Who Weekly podcast, which was amazing. Thank you. <laughs> uh, anything else you can recommend to our listeners? Anything you're reading, watching, or listening to? Yeah. Well, I just read um, a couple of books that are really great. Uh, one is a far future um, book by um, Aliette de Baudard called The Red Scholar's Wake. And it is about a sentient spaceship having a romantic relationship with a, an engineer and they get married in a kind of formal ceremony and then they kind of learn to fall in love with each other in the midst of this like massive um, imperial battle. And it's both, it's a character study but it's also very much about family and found family. And of course it's, you know, it's a relationship between a spaceship and a person, which um, I think we've already established that I find really awesome. And I also just read a great fantasy adventure that's coming out, I think next month, it's called Bitter Medicine by Mia Tsai. And it is this, um, it's like James Bond crossed with, um, maybe supernatural like there's elves and other supernatural creatures and their magic is tied to um various kinds of medicine um and it's like i don't know i can't even explain it it's like a delightful romance spy thriller with magic and elves and you just you have to read it it's so good so those are my recommendations Wow. Yeah, that sounds great. Uh, can you give us a sneak preview of what you're working on next? Yeah, I actually, I just finished my next nonfiction book um, and my editor is looking at it now, um, hopefully benevolently. Um, it's a book about psychological warfare in the United States and how psychological wars affect culture wars. So it was a super depressing book to write. <laughs> and um, it was really nice that I was, I was working on terraformers at the same time. And so one was kind of my happy place and the other one was a was kind of a dark place but um but it does have a happy ending i suppose um as much as a nonfiction book can have a happy ending well let's hope that the real world turns out more like the happy place and less like the dark place thank you so much for yeah. being with us and we'll look forward to having you on again if you'll have us yeah thank you again thanks as always for having me on Thanks to Annalee Newitz and Sarah Reedy at Tor Books for setting up the interview. For more about Annalee and the Terraformers, which, by the way, sounds like a great name for a band, check out my blog item on CosmicLog.com. You'll find links to more information about Annalee's book tour, including a couple of Seattle-area stopovers at Third Place Books on February 3rd and at Fuel Coffee on February 5th. While you're online, check out DominicaFetaPlace.com. Don't worry about the spelling. Just follow the link from the Cosmic Log item. Thanks to James Emily for his rendition of the Fiction Science theme music, composed by yours truly. Please subscribe to our Fiction Science podcast, and feel free to give us a stellar rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, or whatever your favorite podcast channel happens to be. And so, until next time, this is Alan Boyle advising you to watch the skies.